Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. David Kelly joins us now with J.P. Morgan Asset Managers. His work as a global economist and chief global strategist for the shop. David Kelly, I've never heard so much microanalysis in our life. Are the pros right that it's transitory? Part of it's transitory. Part of it has to be. But but we're in the midst of an inflation heat wave here. Uh, you know, we're printing numbers above five percent year over year, and of course, it's going to back down from that. What I think is interesting is that all this talk about inflation, all this acceptance of inflation, all this, uh, these news headlines, that's feeding into inflation expectations. And inflation is, to some extent, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, so when people believe there's going to be higher inflation, they think they can raise their prices. They feel like they're, they're willing to pay higher wages. So the broad picture here is one in which inflation is still running pretty hot and is likely to stay hot through the end of the year until really we see some sort of economic slowdown, which it doesn't seem to be on the horizon here. So I think this is still a very hot report here. So, David, do you think that the market response, the knee-jerk response, is wrong? That basically on the margins, bonds yields inch a little bit lower on this faith that it is transitory? Yes. Uh, well, I think I think we're too obsessed with second derivatives here. I mean, we're looking at, you know, d- d- declines, but we're still on a five-handle on inflation. So to me, it's not so much the, the hour-to-hour reaction of the bond market. Um, it is the notion that you could have a 5% inflation rate with a 1.4% 10-year Treasury yield, I think that's that's extraordinary. Um, and I don't think it'll persist. I do think that we're going to see later on this month, the Fed is going to you know, say that they're going to lay out plans for tapering. I think they're going to start tapering at the end of the year. Um, and gradually, that's going to push interest rates higher. I think it has to, given given where the inflation rate is. And, and the fact that I don't think inflation is all transitory, I think some of this will stick around for the rest of this expansion. Let's put some numbers on that, David, the kind of numbers you're looking for into 22. Four handle on inflation, three handle. What is it? Well, I think I think the first thing is that at the end of the year, we're expecting to see a consumption deflator inflation rate of between three and a half and four percent. So the Fed is, you know, had, have jumped up to 3.4 percent. I think they're still low on that number. And then going into next year, I think we'll have persistent CPI inflation of about two and a half to three percent um, with the consumption deflator inflation rate running at about Two four two five year over year, so well above that Fed, the Fed's two percent long term target. We're still not looking for hyperinflation. I think the economy will eventually slow down enough to avoid that. But I think we're we're sort of, we're back into a new old normal where inflation runs above two percent on average rather than below two percent on average. Is the Fed comfortable with that dynamic, David? Uh, they shouldn't be because it's not just <laughs> inflation; it's about asset prices too. I, I think there, I think there, there should be a growing recognition that a very, very long period of super low interest rates is not only setting the stage for higher inflation; it's enabling uh, pretty reckless fiscal policy in many ways. Uh, but it's also spurring asset bubbles, and all of those things, uh, you know, are, are landmines for the economy going forward. So the Fed shouldn't feel comfortable. <clears throat> what they should be doing is uh, getting ready to raise interest rates and, and to well, cut back 
bond purchases. And, and John Farrell, we had red and green in the screen, Dow up, others not, and now they're all green in the screen. SPX and Dow futures, John, out to record highs. NASDAQ futures up 37, advancing yeah. a quarter of 1%, Tom. Yields behaving themselves. Mm. We're lower by a basis point at the front end now, the two-year well, at about 22 basis points, call it 23. David Kelly, with your frontline economics and also doing strategy for J.P. Morgan, fold this economics and macro price change into the J.P. Morgan conviction on the equity market. Well, the key thing is that this, you know, we're, we're, we're still speeding. We're just speeding a little bit more slowly, but we are exceeding by a long shot the capacity growth rate of the U.S. economy. We're, we're barreling towards full employment, full capacity utilization. That does push up interest rates. Now, everything pivots off interest rates. You've got higher long-term interest rates. I think that you'll see a return to this, um, you know, uh, growth to value <coughs> rotation. Um, I think that you'll see a return to, um, you know, a sort of compression of valuations across markets. And, you know, particularly when I look overseas at very cheap um, equity valuations in relative terms overseas, I think that's going to become more important um, as interest rates rise, because interest rates force you to think about valuations. I do think that higher inflation, strong growth means higher interest rates. At heart, you're a policy man, David, so let's finish there. Mohamed Al in the Washington Post on Friday put out an article basically asking a question whether the dynamics that we were discussing would overwhelm the administration's goals. Do you think it will? Um, I think, I think it, it could well, because I think people are, are misunderstanding what's going on in the economy. The economy is adapting to COVID. I mean, we had one, we've had one economic wave, we've had four pandemic waves, but the economy is, is in, you know, sort of shrugging these things off. It's heading towards full employment. I think the, the danger is the economy will overheat before the, before the administration can achieve a lot of its long-term goals. And just dealing with the macro overheating issue is going to prevent them from dealing with a lot of the goals they want to achieve. So I, th I think that's a fair comment. You have a friend in West Virginia, David Kelly. Thank you, sir. JP Morgan Asset Management Chief Global Strategist, sounding a little bit like Senator Manchin at the end there. Tom, the senator from West Virginia. Let's kick things off with Tony Pretenzi of PIMCO, green. market strategist, portfolio manager and investment committee member. Tony, you've called it preparing Hi, for a crescendo. What do you mean by that, Tony? I mean to find a name other than transitory that's closer matching to my name. <laughs> other than that, Tony. <laughs> other than well, that. Um, there are many things, of course, that are peaking, but a crescendo is probably a better word. You think of a musical band, of course. The music keeps playing. So, in other words, for inflation, even though it'll peak at some point in terms of its sound, the level, uh, it still might be high, uh, and that might unnerve investors at some point. That's why, as you all know, this morning's data is important, and of course the data in the quarter, quarters ahead in terms of the inflation story, whether the Fed can, can regain control right. of the narrative, which it pretty much did in June. Tony, you, you've taken over the mantle from the great uh, Fabozzi in terms of writing the book. The new book is a, a must-read, folks, The Strategic Bond Investor. It's actually in English, which unlike many, many uh, bond books. And in there, Tony, you Thank go you. to the buzzword right now, which is narrative. You talk from tulips to treasuries. What, that's you know the market talk that's out there. What's the narrative right now that is wrong? To use the 2010s analogy uh, for today, the 2010s analogy was that uh, if we use, uh, if we apply what happened in the 2010s to the 2020s, we'll probably all get it wrong. By it, we probably mean the inflation rate 
interest rates and even the growth story. Um, now, some of these things will be different than last time. For example, interest rates could well be higher than in the last decade. But that doesn't necessarily mean that equities will be lower in the coming decade. Because what we have seen is a reboot of the 2020s because of the COVID crisis. And I think back to May and June, the so-called Cornwell consensus uh, was a G7 meeting on a document uh, written in Cornwall when we're in England, where the G7 met. Uh, it, it aimed at um, fostering better conditions for growth, in part, of course, to take on China economically, which, by the way, is not such a scary thing. We think back to the, the Cold War, 1945 to 1991. If an investor went in a cave, it was a mistake, of course. Uh, the, the global pie grew, and it made sense for investors to be invested. Uh, here, instead of an arms race, it's a tech race. It's economic, an economic race that the nations are coming together to um, to, to, to win. Yeah. And so we may have a much different story in this $3.5 trillion bill that has been passed, along with the $1 trillion bill, uh, is an effort uh, that is consistent with the so-called Cornwell consensus to create more inclusiveness, to make our economies greener, and, of course, to well, digitize and to be bigger uh, economically. Tony... The $3.5 trillion plan, it's unclear whether it'll actually pass. A lot of analysts put it at a 50-50 at best. You have this $1.2 trillion in total, $550 billion of new spending that may get passed, the infrastructure, the bipartisan bill. If the $3.5 trillion plan does not get passed, do you still foresee higher yields in this cycle than we saw in the previous cycle? It's highly probable, as you say, Lisa, that the bill will be smaller than what was passed. We see it probably closer to two trillion, but the, there are upside risks to that. But the, the likelihood of passage by the end of the year seems very high. But it is an important part of the 2020s equation because investment in people and things, infrastructure, broadband technology, as the first bill has investments in, those are the things that drive productivity. Remember the simple math on economic growth in the U.S. Uh, historically has been a one plus a two. 1% increase in the amount of humans uh, to produce goods and services and 2% increase in how productive they were. That math has changed. The 1% the increase in people, as we see because of retire, retirements, is now about a half percent. It's projected to be there for the next 30 years, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO. Productivity has been running about 1.5%, which, of course, is slow. But to get that number higher, to make the 2020s a better uh, story in terms of the growth picture, uh, there need be investments in people uh, and in things. And, and uh, ultimately, final, the final word on this is that what the biggest driver of productivity and therefore growth is uh, total factor productivity, fancy way of saying, how do we use people's skills? How do we use the things that are in place to produce things better and faster? Uh, that that's, will be determined by the private sector primarily, but the government sector seems to be engaged even in Europe uh, in, the, in the same vein. And, uh, and so it's an important story that's developed in terms of the efforts to invest. Tony, got to leave it there. It's got to catch up. Tony Crescenzi there, Fimco market strategist and portfolio manager. Tony, thank you. Joining us now is Patrick Palfrey of Credit Suisse. Patrick, let's start right there. Your equity market call, 5K year end next year. But within that, and I find this really interesting, you're not looking for multiple expansion. Quite the opposite. Can you walk me through the call, Patrick? Yeah, John, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I think what a lot of people are underappreciating about this current backdrop is just how strong the corporate profits <clears throat> are growing. And in reality, we're seeing the growth in the E outstripping the P 
So what that means is the PE is flat to slightly down from here. I know it's hard to wrap your head around, but when you have profits going 40% this year, followed by high single digits next year, it allows for multiples to stay constant and flat as opposed to expand. I think that's critical as we look at what right. the driver of returns are for the next 12 to 18 months. Patrick, the Credit Suisse heritage in New York is extraordinary. From the late 90s and Kent Osborne and Michael Mobison and the rest, Dominique Constam on to what you and John Golub are doing today, it's hyper, hyper detailed. In your factor analysis, which is the factor on the scattered out chart that gets you to a Golub 5000 SPX? Well, right now, that, that factor is value. It's pro-cyclicality. Uh, it's looking at the infrastructure package that potentially just passed and the one that is getting framed out currently and looking at what's going on with interest rates and saying, where can I get exposure to the dollars being spent? And that is economic sensitivity. It is financials, it's industrials, it's materials, it's energy, it's anything that looks traditionally value oriented. That's where the leadership's going to come from over the near to intermediate term. Patrick, I want to understand your call for much fatter earnings going forward. So the P.E. ratios to actually start going down, despite the fact that price will continue to rise. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley yesterday came on and he said that he thinks people are underestimating margin pressures. This seems to fly in the face of your call. Why are companies going to be able to continue to pass along expected price increases for their inputs to consumers for the foreseeable future? Well, I, I think it's actually simpler than that. They pass them along. It takes time. So it doesn't mean, you know, month to month, there may not be incremental um, input cost build. And I specify input cost because margin's the total picture. And oftentimes when people talk about margin, there's two components. There's variable, which is that input cost pressure and how that gets passed through. And then there's the fixed part. And in reality, when we begin to pass through those input costs, you're driving higher sales over the existing fixed cost part of your business. That's your machinery. It's your, um, it's your buildings. It's all those long life assets. And that causes significant margin accretion, driving higher sales over those fixed costs. So really what we typically see is margin pressure arises when sales begin to falter. As long as sales remain healthy and demand looks great, the inventory backlog looks phenomenal. Um, we do not see margin pressure um, coming from any of these issues. Patrick, got to jump in with some news. Just some amazing headlines coming from the National Security Advisor, Mr. Sullivan. Tom's saying that OPEC Plus must do more to support the recovery, that OPEC Plus production boosts have not been enough. This is the first real sign of the administration starting to lean on OPEC Plus, Tom, because of higher crude prices and ultimately because of higher gas prices in this country. And what's different here, it's not the, it's not the process, John, that we remember from years ago with American independence and with American supply, elasticity, our responsiveness to price, we can fix the problem to a great extent if we get higher oil prices. Clearly, the administration thinks $70 a barrel's high. Low right now, lower, 67.50 on WTI. Lisa, yeah. we're down by about 1.2%. This is Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, basically saying, Lisa, that OPEC Plus needs to do more. Why now? That's my question. Why now? Because why we've this seen morning? It. Why this morning ahead of the CPI print? I mean, this to me is a difficult uh, sort of uh, thread, needle to thread, because right now no, we're no. looking at a market. Thank you. I try. I really try hard. <laughs> but, John, that to me, I think we have to repeatedly ask throughout the morning. The clue is at 8.30 Eastern, isn't it, oh. when we get an inflation report in America. Patrick, just to wrap up here, 
energy in the equity market, that sector is up 31% year to date. Had a bit of a battle, particularly over the last week, given what crude prices have been up to. Where do you stand on energy? Well, right, right now, I think it's really just dependent on where the commodity goes. And looking at what just came out, should should crude begin to back up here, I think it is a little bit more difficult for energy to continue to work. But over the longer term, we still think demand remains strong. If we look out 12 to 18 months, um, GDP is expected to run well above trend. And that is really going to keep a bid under oil um, in all commodities, for that matter, and, and really continue to propel the energy sector. So today may not be the best day, given the news, but but longer term, we think it's still worse. Well, the administration wants to do something about it. Patrick, it's going to catch up. Patrick Powell there of Credit Suisse. A joy to speak to Steve Sadoff to say he's former SAC CEO, barely describes his contribution to fashion and retail. When you hear the word exclusive, he invented that. He's now MasterCard's senior advisor on a boom economy. Steve, I want to go to Mortar and Brick at 760 Madison Avenue. Hermes is taking a landmark building of brick and mortar, and they're building it out, and it really speaks to the durability of on-site retail versus Amazon. Tell us about the presumed death of Mortar and Brick. You know, I think this death of retail and brick and mortar was so short-lived. The brick and mortar retail is back. If you look at the MasterCard Spending Pulse data, it would tell you that for the month of July, for example, brick and mortar was up 15% versus year ago and represented 82% of all commerce. So while the digital has transformed shopping, people want omni-channel, they want product whenever and wherever they want to get it, the physical retail store is back. And you're seeing it across the board. And the Hermes example that you just gave is a good one relative to stores or reopening. There are more reopenings of physical stores right now than we've seen in years. Not, I'm not talking about reopening the closed stores. I'm talking about opening new stores. So luxury is back. What you find is that the across all levels, the lower end, the high end, you're seeing people back in the stores. They want to experience shopping. They miss shopping in the physical store. Yes, they're buying online. And yes, brick and mortar has gone I'm sorry, digital has gone from 12% of commerce to 18% of commerce, but luxury and physical retail is back. How will Amazon respond to this, all of this, the pandemic? How does Amazon, with a relatively small part of your world, how do they expand their world? Well, I think Amazon is the gold standard in terms of the experience that consumers get. Remember, they want an omni-channel experience. They want the physical store but they also want the convenience of online. So online, I would never, never uh, underestimate Amazon and its power and the impact that it has on the rest of commerce. But I would tell you that the brick and mortar physical store, use examples like a Warby Parker, where they, when they open a physical store, they get triple their digital business. So it's this interaction of the physical and the digital that is so important. And in the post-pandemic world, We've seen how important the digital piece of it is, but it's not digital alone. Steve, and that really is the story of what you're seeing in the data. Steve, talking about the changing nature of brick and mortar with the digital aspect of it, I'm curious about the location of where brick and mortar is coming back fastest. Since there has been a migration, and when I look uh, on Manhattan streets, for example, there are still a lot of empty storefronts for rent for retail. Yeah, I think that you've got to take New York a little bit as an anomaly to what's going on around the country because so much of the New York uh, business, let's take the luxury side of it as an example, 
somewhere around 25, 30% of it is tied to international tourism, which isn't there right now. So New York, I believe, does have some uh, you know shorter term issues. Long term, it'll come back. But I think that you're seeing it across the, you know, you're seeing some shift back to the malls. Malls performance was positive in the uh, last several months. Look at the numbers that Simon's putting on the uh, on the board. So I think that it's going to be a back into certainly some of the malls. Suburban markets are performing well, and a lot of the secondary cities are performing very well. I think New York's a little bit slower than other uh, cities, but I, I think that you're in a period of time where this is a little bit of a Goldilocks retail environment because I have never seen in years almost every sector of the MasterCard uh, categories performing well. Luxury, look at the numbers. You're up 50% versus the pre-pandemic period. Luxury, jewelry, department stores are up 7% versus a pre-pandemic uh, period. Uh, you're looking at apparel growing at 10% versus 19%. i am not talking about last year's numbers. That's right. an... Uh, year was an anomaly because of the pandemic, but versus pre-pandemic levels. And that leads you back to your question about stores opening up in the uh, uh, in the urban areas and some of the suburban, because when you see this kind of growth and the omni-channel presence, the consumer's there. So retailers start opening stores again. So just what would you say to people who say this is somewhat idiosyncratic? People are getting back to work. They have to restock their wardrobes, perhaps after the pandemic 15 or whatever you want to say. They're going back to school. There's a huge seasonal factor here that could potentially be pushing these numbers way beyond where they will be averaged out by the end of the year. What do you say to people who would argue that? Well, I think that there's some element of you've got the benefit of the child tax credit, for example, that's helping the uh, you saw a bump in the end of July in the MasterCard numbers uh, as a result of that. Uh, I think you have this near term uh, phenomena of a shortage of inventory right now. You can't find product. <clears throat> so you're having very high full price selling. Gross margins are favorable. Your supply chain costs are high. And that's going to start to even itself out as you get into next year when more inventory is going to be available. Uh, I think that right now you've got a period for the next three to six months where it's a little bit of a uh, the power is in the hands of the retailer relative to uh, the promotional environment and people have to grab product when they can because it's hard to find uh, the kind of product you want, especially unique differentiated items. But longer term, uh, you know, this is a in retail, I've seen it so many cycles where when product becomes available, retailers will order more product. You're going to start to see more availability as you come back into next year uh, because there's always that desire to catch the last sale. And then I wouldn't be surprised as it go a year from now, you're going to find that you have uh, you're back to a more, much more normal uh, inventory environment. Steve, thank you so much. Steve Sadoff, formerly with Saks uh, Fifth Avenue and with MasterCard, is a senior advisor. Great to hear from him. Nicholas Agusin, he is the CEO of the Hong Kong Exchange, and as you rightfully said, he is the former Asia-Pac chairman of J.P. Morgan, as well as the head of international banking at J.P. Morgan. But now since May 24th or thereabouts, you've been the CEO of Hong Kong Exchange. Obviously, much of your time since you took over as the CEO here has been consumed by the regulatory changes and the, the turmoil on the markets here and the sell-off in many of the platform companies. Uh, how are you 
as the head of the sea, of the, the market here, going to weather the storm because we don't know how deep and how long this is going to last. Yeah. Well, um, thank you. Great to be here. So, firstly, it's 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 obviously a great day for us because we've announced our, our results, which is you know record revenues, record profits, record Connect program, um, and uh, revenues as well. So, lots of good things. As to the regulatory environment, which is like your first question. The, the thing is, this is happening all around the world. We see a lot of antitrust regulations being implemented on big tech. It's happening in Europe. The uh, Chinese authorities are in their long march to seeing how they're going to regulate this part of the industry, which is a new economy. Different experiences around the world, they're doing it in, in their own way and trying to adjust to, to what's the right way to regulate this. So this will take some time to trickle down through the system. But we can't downplay the significance of it when you look at the weighting of the Hang Seng Index. But Alibaba's number one with about 10%, and number four is Tencent, number five is Meituan, three of the top big companies that are under direct regulatory scrutiny right now, mm -hmm. about 23-24% of the market weighting of the Hang Seng Index. So so there's so much pressure internationally as well to do we stay in, do we pull out? That's the question a lot of international investors have right now that yeah. you have to deal with. You talked about these challenges in mm -hmm. the earnings report yes. today. Yes, and, and absolutely. Now, we have not seen the volume decrease. I mean, actually, volumes have held pretty constant, and there is continued activity. I do believe that there will be an impact. We have to see how this impact trickles through. But we're seeing similar type of modifications to how big tech works all around the world. All platform businesses are being scrutinized, how they use their data, how they manage information about their clients, do they have too much power, how are we going to like, manage their, how they deal with the public. So I, I don't see it as too different from what we're seeing in other places. It may be perhaps in its own way in some sectors like education, it may be in a specific way that we don't see too much in other places. But if you look at big companies, it's, it's very, very similar. How's it impacting the IPO pipeline? Because they were down in the second quarter after what was a blistering first quarter. That, um, I mean, that's correct. I mean, if we look at the, 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 the first six months, 46 um, IPOs, that's double what it was in the first six of, of last year. It slowed down a, a bit on, 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 the second, on the second quarter. And the pipeline is actually at record levels. I mean, if we look at how many companies have actually filed and are being analyzed, we have around 200 companies. So that's a very, very significant and healthy pipeline. But is tech holding off right now? I mean, there have been lots of reports that ByteDance perhaps is going to go ahead despite its regulatory scrutiny. Uh, first of all, in the first six months, of the companies that listed, this 46 that I mentioned, 92% were tech companies. So they are the ones that are coming. The companies will, of course, assess the market. When is it too volatile to go? But, but there are companies listing. There's a, a listing ceremony that we have tomorrow. I mean, we had one last week. I mean, so, so the activity has slowed down because some companies are evaluating the market. Is this the best market for me to go or not? It has slowed down. The pipeline remains very, very strong. And we actually have more and more companies that are inquiring about doing an IPO in Hong Kong possibly companies that were perhaps analyzing other markets, and now they're asking a lot of questions about Hong Kong. How are you going to put your personal stamp on this role uh, at a time, of course, of great volatility? Uh, you know, there's talk, of course, the, the Paul Chan, the financial secretary, told me, broke news with me saying he was going to welcome SPACs. 
the framework agreement, is it almost ready? Well, I mean, there's uh, SPACs is, is one of the products that has been discussed for some time. There's a consultation that is going to be launched probably over the next uh, few weeks. And post that consultation, depend, depending on what the output of that consultation is, we'll set up the right framework. There are conversation on, conversations that are ongoing between the securities regulators and ourselves and the government, and, and we're trying to make a framework of an instrument that is actually a high-quality in instrument. We want to give opportunities to investors, but we have an obligation also to protect the investor's interest. All right. Do you see a decoupling a bit with Hong Kong because of the regulatory scrutiny uh, in China, a decoupling between the S&P and, of course, the Hang Seng here? So if I look at the, the data, I don't see any possible decoupling in the sense that we're seeing more international investors participating in the market. I mean, if I give you a little bit of the historical framework of you look at 2019 when there was $89 billion on average every day, then going up to $180 billion, and, and, and right now, I mean, 188, it's, it's almost double. Yeah. It's, it's like, just like very significant. You also talked in the conference call today about data revenue, about 4% for, yeah. for the, right. the Hong Kong exchange right now. How are you going to increase data revenue? You want to obviously increase data revenue at a time when China seems to have an iron fist grip on data. Yeah. It's, it, this is data that we have, that we, tr we have to try to use it in as efficient a, a way as possible. So um, if you look at the averages for other exchanges around the world, it's a higher number. So what we have to do is to make sure are we doing all the right things that we can with our data in, in terms of like commercializing with our participants, with the investor community, and, 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 and that's, that's what it is. It's a little bit data that, different data than, than the one of some of the players. Nicholas Agazin, thank you so much, CEO of Hong Kong Exchange. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.